0: Today, we begin a new sermon series called Turning Points. We will look at individuals and groups of people in the Bible who faced a turning point in their own lives. What can we learn from their examples? We begin with the story of Abraham, who was the father of three great religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Listen for how Abraham responds when God calls him from Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarah and his brother's son Lot and all their possessions that they had gathered and the persons they had acquired in Haran and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to, you, to him, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. May God bless this reading to our understanding. When I first moved to Kansas City from Texas, I had only spent a couple of days in Kansas City, once for the interview here at the church and once to look for an apartment, so I knew nothing about Kansas City. And when moving here, I realized I was going to purchase a new car, so I left my old Heap of a car at the dump in Texas and flew to Kansas City on moving day. And the person from the car dealership picked me up at the airport, drove me back to the dealership. I signed the paperwork for the car. I got in the car and he said to me, Just get on 435 right over here and head out. And I was on my way to my friend's house where I would spend a few days until my moving van arrived. Well, this was long before Google Maps was everyone's best friend. And so I got on 435, just as the car salesman had directed me, but it seemed like 435 just kept going around and around and around the city and I never could seem to find the exit and I began to think I would never find my friend's house and so finally I just pulled over and stopped in a Penny's parking lot and cried. Transitions are stressful. Moving is hard. Even positive turning points in life can turn the most calm, centered people into absolute messes. Whether it's the first day of kindergarten or the first day of college, there is a part of each of us that longs to cling to the past, to hold on to what we know is familiar and safe. The toddler literally clings to dad's pant leg rather than going into the classroom filled with desks and books. The college student spends her first week in class and then calls home to say, you know, I think I'll come home and spend Labor Day with you and dad. Even joyful pivot points in life, such as the birth of a child or a new marriage, can discombobulate us. I remember my sister-in-law and her husband waited almost 10 years before they had their first child. After they brought their newborn home, they were sitting one night in front of the TV watching their favorite show when they decided they would go out for ice cream. They got in the car, they buckled their seat belts, they opened the garage door, they put the car in reverse, and then one of them remembered that they had an infant still in the house. And social psychologists tell us that the first two years of any marriage are the most fragile period of the relationship because the relationship is going through so many transitions. Where will we spend Christmas? What is the custom for Easter? How will we merge our finances? And why do you do that with the toothpaste? That's just wrong. So this is why today's scripture from the book of Genesis baffles me. Abraham faces this huge turning point in his life, and Abraham seems completely unfazed by it. God says to Abraham, go, and Abraham went. Now, how could it be that simple? Abraham leaves his comfortable city of Haran, which is in present-day Turkey, and travels to a place where he doesn't know the language, doesn't know the religion, doesn't know the customs, to a place he's never seen before called Canaan. Abraham isn't even 100% sure exactly where God is telling him to go. God says, leave your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you. One scholar says that Abraham is told to go to a place that his eyes cannot see. The call is dangerously open-ended. Now, Abraham is already a wealthy man, 75 years old. It must have taken enormous confidence to pack up his wife, his nephew, his household servants, his livestock, put it all in a moving van, pack up all the camels, and head out to this mysterious place full of unknowns. How is it that the scripture paints Abraham as being so sure-footed when the way forward is dangerous, perilous, uncertain. How is it that God says to him, go, and Abraham went? His blind faith and his bold courage reminds me of a much more frivolous scene and yet one that still involves boldness and courage. It's that first episode of the hit TV comedy, Ted Lasso. Kansas Cityan Jason Sudeikis plays the role of Ted Lasso in the hit comedy series. Ted is this affable, happy-go-lucky American football coach from Wichita, Kansas. In episode one, Ted flies across the ocean preparing to land in England to become the head coach of a British premier team that is in desperate need of being turned around and put back on the path to winning games. But you can tell before Ted even gets off the plane, he's in trouble. He does not fit in England. He doesn't drink tea, he doesn't like scones. He doesn't even know much about this game, not even all the rules of soccer, which is apparently what the Brits call football. Whatever. He, he doesn't care. He is not ruffled. He doesn't know anything about the star players on his team or the competition that they will face. He is culturally, professionally, and socially out of sync. But Ted seems oblivious to his own inadequacy for the job. He is determined to take a leap of faith and turn this football, this soccer team, around. And he is oblivious to what we in the audience know, that he has been hired as a ruse to make the team sink. Now, I've watched this episode one twice, and both times I watched it, I just wanted to jump into the screen, take Ted by both shoulders, and say to him, go home. You don't know what you're doing. But if I had, Ted would have just smiled and laughed and kept on going because he seems to have no qualms about taking a risk and charging out in a new life direction. And the whole team and all of its fans will rise or fall with Ted's success or failure. His audacity and his boldness reminds me of the way Abraham is painted the book of Genesis. How is it that some people we know are able to take a risk and embrace life's turning points and others of us feel like our feet are planted in concrete and we're not moving anywhere new? How is it that sometimes we find ourselves able to take a leap of faith And other times we find ourselves longing to cling to what is familiar, to hold on to the past. My friend Jan raised her two kids, and when they were both out of the nest at age 50, she went back and earned a master's degree in counseling and spent 25 years being of service to others in the field of counseling. That's risk. That's risky faith. My friend Rudy retired when he was only 50 years old. He had been enormously successful in the business world. He knew that his own father had died of a heart attack at age 50, and he decided that he wanted to spend whatever years he had left after 50 doing what mattered most to him, caring about the causes that really mattered to him in life, like the environment and getting at-risk kids to go to college and reaching out to empower special needs kids sometimes we find the courage to take a risk to step out of our own comfort zones but many times you and i crave well-being security settledness but god doesn't settle god moves god summons god invites and Abraham goes. How do you and I embrace the turning points of our own lives with the risky faith of Abraham? I wish it was easy. I wish I could tell you, like Nike says, just do it, and then this sermon would be over, and you would all go out and take enormous risks this week. But it just doesn't work that way. Well, it doesn't in my own experience. Sometimes, we find ourselves shrinking back, guarding our hearts from disappointment, from danger, from becoming broken. I think of one of my favorite theologians, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard wrote an entire book on Abraham, and in it he said, Abraham, I cannot understand. In a certain sense, there is nothing I can learn from Abraham except astonishment. Soren Kierkegaard struggled. He was madly in love with a woman named Regina, but he never married her because there was a way in which, even though Kierkegaard could write inspiring books on the love of God and the risk of faith, he himself could not actually take the risk of having a broken heart, of marrying Regina. Taking a risk is hard. Trusting God when we can't see exactly where we're going is hard. And sometimes we use all our energy to resist God's call. So today, is there anything more we can learn from Abraham other than to be astonished? As I reread Abraham's story this week, I recall that some scholars say that Abraham may not have been an actual person, but more of a metaphor, a prototype, a man representing the whole community of God's people. How would the whole community of God's people embark on a risky journey of faith in the ancient day? And the text says, something that supports this notion, it says that God would bless Abraham, so that the whole community would be blessed. So it's not really a story of one man. It's a story of humankind. And then I remembered when a text baffles us, sometimes it helps to read it in context, to step back, put on your wide angle lens, and see what led up to this particular moment where God is sojourning traveling moving with the human race and i began to see how abraham's story fit in the larger picture you remember how god created adam and eve and lavished them with beauty and abundance in that place called a garden of eden but adam and eve took matters into their own control and ate the forbidden fruit and hid from god as if you could hide from god and their lives fell apart. And then God started wringing God's hands and decided not to give up on Adam and Eve, but instead to make a plan B. God clothes Adam and Eve with the fig leaves, and they start life over outside the garden, and they carry home in little bassinets their sons, Cain and Abel, beaming with joy, watching their sons become teenagers and mature into young men, And then Cain is so jealous of Abel that he murders his brother and life again becomes a mess. So God thinks, erase all of this, start over with creation. God finds one good man, one righteous man named Noah and tells Noah, build an ark. But after the flood subsides and the rainbow shines and Noah steps off the boat in the next scene, Noah is inebriated and doing stupid stuff and the whole family fractures again. And then comes the story of the Tower of Babel where humanity tries to play God and live without faith. And if I were God at this point, I would wipe my hands clean, and give up. But God gets a new idea. God decides, I'll take a risk on Abraham. You see, what saved the world was not Abraham's risky faith. It was God's. In the first 11 chapters of the Bible, God tries four different times to create to create a wonderful world for humanity to enjoy, and every time we mess it up. So the one with unbelievable faith in this story is not Abraham. It is not the one who stands in for humanity. The one who risks it all is love, reputation, beauty is God. And God keeps risking all the way through the Bible. God took a risk to send Jesus to earth to dwell with us. And we know what happened. And God took a risk partnering with Paul who was persecuting the Christians and made Paul the one who would partner with God to spread Christianity to the known world. And in the early days of our own country, God took a risk on a frontier movement of Christians who thought that this table should be open to all people. And that is how you and I came to be part of this movement called the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, a movement for wholeness in a fragmented world. And God took a risk on our nation again in the 1960s when a Southern preacher named Martin Luther King spoke of his dream for all of God's children to be included in the dream. It is easier to look back and see God's risky faith unfolding in history, but today you and I stand here in the midst of another turning point. Our nation, our globe, still emerging from a global pandemic, an international crisis of war between Russia and Ukraine affecting the whole globe, does God still show up in life's turning points? Might God still risk breathing blessings upon humanity? There was a man named Lawrence Clifton Jones. He was born in 1882, just up the road here in St. Joseph, Missouri. He graduated from the University of Iowa in 1909 and moved to the deep south where he dedicated his life to improving education for people who looked like him, who were African American. One day, Lawrence was speaking at an African American church Just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, he was speaking about his passion to educate the children. And a group of vigilantes came into the church and dragged him out of the little church and charged him with the crime of agitation. They had heard that Lawrence's speeches were stirring up the people, and so they dragged him to the center of town to be lynched. The noose was placed around his neck. The crowds shouted in support of the lynching. But per custom, he was given just a few moments to speak his last words. Lawrence did not plead for his life. He used those last few minutes, his last breath, to tell the story of how he had come to Mississippi with his fortune of $1.65 and he sat down on a pine stump in the fields and taught three African-American children to read. And he took up work as a farm laborer to support himself so that he could spend the rest of his time raising money to start schools to educate the children. As a Christian, he was dedicated to teaching other children to read. As he told his story, slowly, some of the men from the lynching squad Stepped towards Lawrence and removed the noose from his neck. And the crowd that had cheered to see him die reached into their wallets and took up an offering for Lawrence's schools. What began as a lynching ended as a fundraiser to educate the children. What began as death ended with life, and Lawrence's school still exist today. God continues to break through our resistance. God engages in the radical act of trusting in humanity. God dares to risk putting faith in us.